If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Proverbs. We're going to be flipping around, but you can kind of flip around with me. Proverbs 1, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 9, if you want to just kind of grab those real quick, or you can look at the screen. But if I haven't met you, my name is Jason. I have the honor of preaching God's Word to you today. Let's hear now from the Word of Christ. Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for 10 years, uh, Andrew Duhon and Brett Pennington, who are both members of our church and I, we were old college friends. We, we went on these adventures together. We went every year for 10 years and we would go climb something or hike something or fish somewhere. But one year we went to Glacier National Park and we were doing this big backpacking loop and it was an ambitious loop and we were a few days into our, uh, our journey there. And it was just, we were tired. It was toward the end of the day. We had one kind of just ascent and then decline down into our camp. And so it was, it was that point in the day where we had been talking all day and we were just tired. We're going up this hill and our heads were down. You know, I used to make fun of guys that hiked with hiking poles, but now I can't imagine hiking without them. So, you know, we had our hiking poles, we're going uphill, head down, and the three of us were just all there together on a single track. And all of a sudden, Brett, who was in the front, stopped, and we all looked up, and we had come up on a 600-pound grizzly bear. And so immediately we kind of sprung into action. You know, we always carry bear spray. I was quick with my draw. I was impressed with my quick draw skills. You know, I had our bear spray out and by God's kindness, the bear didn't do anything. He just looked at us and then walked into the woods and we were all incredibly relieved. Um, But we had been downwind of him. We weren't talking. And so we were kind of able to sneak up on him, if you will. We didn't mean to sneak up on him, but we just startled him. And he, of course, startled us. But for the rest of that hike, and I tell you this story, for the rest of that hike, and really kind of in every hike since then, that bear hasn't been far from my mind. You know, you're, you're supposed to, when you hike, make noise. You're supposed to talk or put a bell on your backpack or every once in a while say, hey, bear, because you, that's what you don't want to do. You don't want to startle a bear. You don't want to come up on him. And we knew that, but it just wasn't present with us. And it's interesting that that one little encounter with a bear that close to this just massive animal that God has made has never been too far from my mind when I'm out in the woods. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been talking about making decisions 
the kind of decisions that are both righteous in accord with the law of God and wise in accord with the wisdom of God, decisions that ultimately please the Lord. And if you've, if you've read your Bible, you, you kind of have seen these juxtapositions that are really all over the Bible. The Bible almost treats some of these juxtapositions as if they are characters. The righteous man is this way, does these things. The wicked man is this way, does these things. The wise man is this way and does these things. While the foolish man is this way and does these things. And, and so we've been talking about this and I, I hope this has been helpful for you as two axes, the, the righteous and wicked axis and the foolish and wise axis. As you make decisions in life, as you encounter all sorts of decisions that you have to make every day, big decisions or small decisions, I think that our hope in this is pastoral, that you would kind of think along the terms of these axes. Is this righteous? Does it please the Lord? And is this wise? Is this in accordance with the wisdom of God? And, and not only is this a tool for you as an individual, I hope this is a tool for you to use with one another, to come alongside one another and say, hey, as we think through this together, let's use this grid. We wanna be the kind of people, God wants us to be the kind of people that are both godly, that love the righteous order of God but they're also wise that love the wisdom that comes from above. Because there, it's possible to make decisions, to even have a pattern of your life that are both foolish and wicked. Now that seems so dramatic, but it's probably a little more subtle than you think. You can be in that quadrant of wicked and foolish pretty easily. I, I know some of you guys, and I just want to confront you with this. Pornography is a struggle in your life. I just want to go ahead and tell you, you are making as you submit to that. I'm going to plead with you to shine light on that, to confess that sin, to get help with that, because that is a decision. If that's a decision you're making that is both wicked, it dishonors an institution that God has made and that he's called sacred, called sex. It dishonors women. It dishonors your sisters in Christ. It dishonors so many things. It's both wicked, but it's also foolish. Have you not done some of the research on the effects that pornography has on the human mind, of the effects of addictive behavior, of the effects that pornography can have on a marriage someday? And that's a very subtle thing that a lot of people swim into. It's, it's, it's both wicked and foolish. This quadrant is not very far from us. In fact, as I've been saying all along, the, the river of the world, the, the river of the secular world that we live in is always pushing us this way. But there's also a way to, to have some wisdom, to consider even godly wisdom, wisdom that we see in the Bible, but to be wicked, to be unrighteous. We've been calling this kind of the worldly wise quadrant. And I just want to say that I think that Christian pastors are, are partly to blame for this. If there is wisdom in the Bible, of course, we believe in a God who created all things. And so understanding his order is a wise thing to do. 
But if the Bible has been presented to you as just this tool that you can use to make better decisions, as this tool that you can have to get ahead, to have a better marriage, to be a better friend, to be a better worker, if that's, if that's how the Bible has been taught to you, very subtly and very really, rather than worshiping a transcendent and holy God, you begin to see God as just another self-help author that exists to kind of help you along in your journey. There is a way to hang out here, <laughs> to be incredibly worldly, but maybe be taking on some of the wisdom that is from above. But there's also a way to hang out in this quadrant, to be righteous, to be convicted of something, but to be incredibly foolish in it. There is a way to use righteousness and not to, with that righteousness, and love others, but to love yourself, to serve your pride, to use the righteousness of God to try to control other people, to try to manipulate other people. There's, there's a way in the righteousness of God to, to be full of self-centeredness and self-righteousness, which is, in fact, wicked. So how do we avoid this? Because I just want you to hear this, guys. I mean, this is, this is the air we breathe. This is Atlanta. In Atlanta, you're, you're either kind of tempted to be pushed into this quadrant where Jesus is not really Lord, but a helpful guide, and I sometimes read the Jewish or Christian myths to help me along, or you'll be able to, you'll be kind of pushed into this quadrant, which can oftentimes uh, become just an echo chamber of people that affirm how righteous you are and how wicked they are. How do you, how do we live here? How do, how do we move to this category where we're people that are full of godliness, that love the righteousness of God, but that also love the wisdom of God? And the answer is fear. The answer is fear. It's having the right fear. And we see this in the Bible. We see this in the Proverbs. Just to, again, I want to read these Proverbs again that we started with. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. That is a powerful passage. That one may turn away from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so what I'm hoping for today, what I'm praying for today is that you would have a right encounter with God. Just like I had that encounter with the grizzly bear <laughs> and he was never too far from my mind. He, he kind of, that one grizzly bear kind of controlled the way that I have been hiking ever since. My hope today is that we would encounter the living God, that he would never be too far from us and that, that he, our knowledge of him, our, our right fear of him would actually lead us in all righteousness and in all wisdom. So I wanna look at three things today. First, the fear of the Lord. Second, the fear of man. 
And then thirdly, the results of fear. Now, the fear of the Lord. Some of you, you know, that are new to Christ's covenant or some of you maybe been coming around, you're thinking, okay, I'm glad we're talking about this because this whole fear of the Lord thing is weird. I, am I supposed to fear God? I, I want to think of God not as something that I fear, but as someone who I love. Fear obviously can be such a bad word, right? We fear disease. We fear the Taliban. We fear getting into a car accident. Like, what does it mean that we're supposed to also fear God? I'm supposed to love God and delight in God. I oftentimes don't delight in the things that I fear. Now, there is a sense where this kind of fear that I'm describing here, the fear of terror, is right, is appropriate when thinking about the Lord. John Owen, who's <laughs> been such a helpful author in my life, writes in his helpful little book, Communion with God. He says this, the Father, God the Father, is commonly seen only as full of wrath and anger against sin, right? You've heard God the Father kind of presented in this way, this angry Father, right? But then Owen says, if you thought about God like that, there's a sense where you're right. Sinful man can have no other thoughts of God. That's interesting. What is Owen saying? In our sin, this kind of terror, fear that we have, it's actually the appropriate way to think about the Father. I think this is a helpful thought experiment. If God were to show up right now, God, in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, and call your name, that were to happen right now to you, what, what, what comes to mind? Is there any delight and longing for that? Or, or would that be terrible? And I think that'll tell you a lot about your relationship with God. It'll tell you a lot in terms of how well you know God, how much communion with the Lord you actually have. See, God is holy and we are not holy. God is totally righteous in deed, in thought, in action, and we are not. And God does hate sin. Why does God hate sin? Because he loves justice. He so loves what is right and beautiful and good that any distortion of that, his godness leads him to restore. There's this Hebrew idea, you've heard it before, shalom, right? It's translated oftentimes in your Bible as peace, but really the, the better word is kind of wholeness, right? The shalom of God, the wholeness of God, where everything is in right order, everything is set right. God is passionate about his shalom, his order. God is whole. He desires his creation to be whole, not distorted, not out of order. And God is passionate about maintaining his order, his holiness, his justice. And when his order is distorted, when his justice is perverted, when his way is perverted, God must in his godness restore the order. Now, for the unjust, for the distorter, that's bad news. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, God will always take fearful vengeance when his divine law and order is attacked or distorted. I think that's true. And I like to say it this way. God will always eventually take fearful vengeance when his divine law is attacked and distorted. I've come to appreciate the kind of laws of God that you can break where there's quick vengeance, right? Those are easy to not break. You know, some of y'all know about a year and a half ago, I separated my shoulder, tore my labrum, had to have surgery. The shoulder, if you, you don't want to mess up your shoulder. I, I learned that's, that's a, don't mess up your shoulders, guys. It's a pain. But I messed it up snowboarding and I shouldn't have even been snowboarding. I was on the young adult ski trip. I hadn't snowboarded in 10 years, but it was the last day of the trip and I was feeling cool and I was like, yeah, I'll try snowboarding. So I was going down a run, I hit a front edge, smashed my shoulder. I had challenged the law of God called gravity. <laughs> and that's one of those laws. When you challenge it, it will take fearful vengeance on you. But there are other laws. I want you to hear this. God will always eventually take vengeance where his law is distorted and challenged. If, if you, there are some of you today, and I, I say this in love as a pastor, there are hidden sins in your life. There are hidden patterns of sin in your life. I just want to say this. God will take vengeance where his law is distorted, where his law is challenged, be careful. God will not be mocked. And I just want you to hear this. Without God's grace, in our sin, we stand opposed to God, all of us, as the one who has distorted his order. And thus, without the gospel, as John Owen says, without God's intervention, without God's grace, the only right way to see God is with crippling and terrifying fear. The Father is commonly seen only as full of wrath and anger against sin. Sinful man can have no other thoughts of God. And I just want to say, if right now... God is convicting you. You are feeling this kind of fear, that kind of fear that gives you clarity to see God rightly actually is God's grace. So, so praise God for if you're experiencing that right now, that's good. That is God's kindness. There's an old song that you've sung many times before and you may have never paid attention called Amazing Grace. And one of the lines says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear it's grace that taught my heart to fear, to see God rightly, to see myself rightly in light of a holy God. If you have sinned against a holy God, distorting his order, abusing his people, if you've continued in a sin pattern, if you've used God's blessing for your own sake in a selfish way, and right now God is giving you a moment of clarity and you are feeling conviction, that is actually God's grace to you. That is God teaching your heart to fear, and that's good news. But I and have better news. John Owen goes on. He says, the right way that we as sinful people can only see God is full of vengeance, but in the gospel, God is now revealed, especially as love, as full of love to us. 
To bring this home, to bring this truth home is the special work of the gospel. The amazing news, the amazing message of the gospel, the, the amazing word that we can delight in is that, is that God, who is just, has also become the justifier that Jesus, who is totally righteous, has taken on the punishment that we deserve and our sins were paid fully on the cross through the death of Christ and by the power of his resurrection, we, through faith in him, can now not see God as this terrifying God, but as a loving father, as one who loves us and desires to be in relationship with us. God is now revealed as full of love to us. To bring this home is the special work of the gospel. And so the gospel, and I want you to hear this, changes your fear. There's still a fear of God, but the gospel changes the kind of fear that we have toward the Lord. One of my favorite stories in the scripture it's in several gospels, but in Mark 4, I'll read it. It's Jesus is on a boat with his disciples and a storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee. There's wind and there's waves and the disciples are terrified. And what's Jesus doing? He's asleep on the boat. And so the disciples go to him. This is Mark 4, 38. And they wake him up and they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then I love verse 41. And they were fear feared with great fear, filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. They were afraid of the storm. <laughs> Jesus wakes up, calms the storm. They were relieved. But then they have another moment of clarity and they say, hold on. <laughs> that guy can speak to the wind and it obeys. That guy can command the water and it listens to his voice. Who are we dealing with here? And this is the kind of fear. Not this fear of terror, but this fear of awe and reverence for the holiness and protection and care of God. This is the kind of fear that is the beginning of wisdom. This is the kind of fear that is a fountain of life. It's not a kind of fear of terror, as Michael Reeves describes, a sinful fear, but it's a right fear. Michael Reeves says, in the book that we've been passing out, the gospel frees us from our crippling fears, giving us instead a most delightful, happy, and wonderful fear. William Gouge, another Puritan author explains, true godly fear actually arises from faith in the mercy and goodness of God. For when the heart of man hath once felt a sweet taste of God's goodness and found that in his favor only all happiness, happiness consisteth. We should still use the word consisteth, right? No, but in the favor of God, only all 
happiness consists where? In the favor of God. And when your heart tastes that, it is stricken with such an inward awe and reverence. This is the kind of fear of the Lord that is a fountain of life. This is the kind of fear of the Lord that leads you to wisdom, that leads you to righteousness. You could say it this way, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, <laughs> to fear the sovereign Lord and his justice. And grace my fears relieved by trusting in the mercy and love that God has displayed to me in the gospel. And grace that led me to be afraid again, only this time a fear that is good and right and pleasing and sweet and kind because I have seen the goodness of God. I fear the Lord like I fear Paige, my wife. There's a reverence there. Before I knew Paige, you know, before I asked Paige out, I was afraid, right? We all are, right? What's she gonna say? Is she gonna reject me? Am I gonna be hurt? Am I gonna give my heart to this girl and then she's gonna break it, right? But now we're in a covenant with one another. Now I've experienced her love. I know she loves me. I know she's been willing to sacrifice for me. And so now this, this, this mystery of this marriage union has created in me an awe of her, a fear of her. I want, I want to please her. I want, I want her to be pleased with me. I, when I hurt her, it hurts me. There is a fear there, not a terror. I'm not a terrified of Paige. I'm in awe of Paige. There's a reverence for her. This is the kind of fear that the gospel calls us into. It frees us from crippling fear and gives us the most delightful, happy, and wonderful fear. And so let me ask you, do you fear God or do you fear God? Do you fear God in terror? And if so, that is grace. There is, an, there is an answer to that fear called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or have you experienced this gospel and now fear God in wonder? This is the kind of fear that is a fountain of life. This is the kind of fear that leads you to wisdom and knowledge. So we've talked about the fear of the Lord, but secondly, I want to talk about the fear of man. And I want to get straight to the point here. Some of you have had experience with the Lord. Some of you have been moved by the Lord. Some of you have seen value in the Lord. Some of you have been baptized. Some of you have been raised in the church. Some of you have even taken on ministry leadership positions. You've been around the Christian thing. But the controlling fear in your life the grizzly bear, if you will, that's kind of always on your mind is not the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of man. The delight that you really long for is not the delight of God. It's the delight of man. One of the most haunting passages in the whole Bible comes in the Gospel of John and it comes in this most amazing spot. One of the amazing features of the Gospel of John, if you've read it, is that like a third of the book is the accounts, the events of one night of Jesus' life. 
And right before that, heading into this amazing description of this powerful moment with Jesus and his disciples, kind of between these two pivotal moments, after Jesus raises Lazarus, after he enters into Jerusalem, and right before this night, there's this passage. It comes in John chapter 12, and it's talking about how people are starting to believe in Jesus. And John quotes the prophet Isaiah and says, but some of the eyes of the people were blinded. But then he says in John 12, 42, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. They saw some good in him. They saw some value in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Is the controlling force in your life, ask yourself this question, really the fear of God, this fear of wonder, or is it the fear of man? You know, I always ask myself as a pastor, and, and the other pastors and I talk about this, do our people really love Jesus? If, if you took all this stuff away, do they really love Jesus? If there was nothing to gain socially, by being known as a Christian, or if, if there wasn't community that you could gain, if, if you were really being put out, do you really love Jesus? Are these people a people that really love Jesus? Are you really a people that see this man that lived 2,000 years ago and died on a bloody Roman cross as your only hope? Is that your life? Is that the controlling anchor in your life. Because you know what? That, to, to stake your life in a bloody Roman cross 2,000 years ago is foolishness, according to the world. Even the Bible says so. Paul the Apostle writes in 1 Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly. It's silly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. If you took all this stuff away, if church wasn't a place where you could gain a good reputation or make nice friends. If you took all this away, are, are we really a people who love the praise of God more than we love the praise of man? And what's scary about us, Christ's covenant in particular, is we live in a time by God's common grace that we can kind of have both. Paul in that same 1 Corinthians passage says, for consider your calling brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this is a haunting verse for a pastor in Atlanta. I'm glad this doesn't say not any. By God's grace for many of us, it says not many. I've heard it said, we're saved by the M. Because I look around and a lot of you are wise and well off and of noble birth. And, and I just want to say, that's, again, it doesn't say not any, it only says not many. But what are you boasting in? What is your confidence in? Whose praise do you delight in? Do you love the glory that comes from man? Or do you love the glory that comes from God? Which brings me to the final point, the result of fear. This will determine this. How do you know if you're moving this way? Well, it's fear. And the fear of God will pull you up here. And the fear of man will pull you down here. And I want to be very careful and clear about this. I think a lot of people can come to a series like this and say, okay, I want to get some wisdom. I want to do right things. So it will go well with me. So I'll get the accolades of man. And you know, I want to say, a lot of times that happens. There, there is good to wisdom. There is good to righteousness. In God's common grace and in his order, following his order is right. But I just want to say, and I want to say this very clearly, you can do all of this and it may not go well with you in this life. You can do all of this and it actually may go very poorly for you in this life. The only thing that's going to keep you here is not the promise of being wise or the promise of doing the right thing. It's the love of God. It's the fear of God. That's when you actually make the decisions that please the Lord. You know, I talk to a lot of our young men, for example, about being sexually pure. And you know, when I was a young man, you know how sexual purity was presented to me? It was like, look, you're going to make a good deal here. You don't want to get an STD. You don't want to get a girl pregnant. And if you save yourself for marriage on the other side, it's going to be amazing. It was like, get this good deal. You can still get in now. Don't mess up the deal. And you know what all my friends, <laughs> most of the people around me did? They said, actually, <laughs> I think this is a pretty good deal. If, if, if Christianity, if Christian righteousness and wisdom is, is being presented to you as getting a good deal, you're never going to make the decisions that actually please God. But if you desire the praise that comes from God more than the praise that comes from man, then his wisdom and his righteousness will be your desire. You're never going to be really generous not really. 
you know, you might give a little bit here to feel better about yourself, but you're never going to really sacrifice for others unless you desire the praise that comes from God. You're never going to care about the poor. I mean, you might like do an event one time a year and post it all over Instagram so you'll get the praise of man, but you'll never really care for the poor, really identify with the needy. Unless you desire a praise from God that cannot be seen. You can, you can hang out your whole life here and it may not go well with you. You know, the truth of the matter is though, there's only been one person that's ever really done this. You know? Who of us is wise? Who of us is righteous? There's only been one person who's ever always hung out here. And you know what? <laughs> it didn't go well for him. He was poor. He was despised. He was rejected. He was hung on a Roman cross. He took on the punishment that he didn't deserve, the punishment of others. It didn't in this life go well for him, but now he's been given a name that is above every name. Now he is experiencing fully the delight of his Father. That is our Lord. And that is also our hope. How do we become people that really live for the delight of God, that really live in his righteousness? It's, it's that we believe and we follow one who has and one who has loved us and one who gave his life for us in mercy. We receive this gospel and all of a sudden this God that, that can seem so terrifying in our sin, the only way we see him is, is as loving and merciful and kind to us because of the mercy that he's shown us in Jesus. God wants us to be a church that is righteous and wise and good because we've been transformed by this gospel, by his son. And God will do this. God is doing this in us as we look to him. So let's look to him now in prayer. Before we pray, before we go before the Lord, I just want to give you a moment to just open your heart to the Lord. This could just be a moment in the radiance of his purity to ask him to test your thoughts, your attitudes, your life, to ask him to reveal sin to you. And to just have a moment of repentance. Why don't you do that? Just to bear your soul before the Lord now. And as you do, I, I ask you to remember the gospel. To, to remember that the response of our repentance 
is not to go do more and try to somehow cover it, but rather it's, it's to look to the one who's already done everything, who's already been perfectly righteous and perfectly wise and perfectly holy and who took on our record of sin. It's to look to Jesus in faith. And so even now, I just ask you in the quietness of your heart to just look to Christ, to worship him, to thank him for his grace and kindness. And so Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for speaking to your church today. I pray that in the grace of Christ, you would build your church. That you would lead us away from the praise of men to the praise of God, that we would desire your praise, Lord. Praise that, Lord, you, you freely give us in Christ, that you have given us in Christ. I pray, Father, today that we would look to him and we would look to him and, and, and in looking to him, know that we can look to you, Father, in confidence as your sons, as your daughters, as the, the objects of your delight. May this gospel penetrate our, our hearts and be real in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.